Welcome to the Post-Brexit Europe podcast, which is a product of the Bridge Network, recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. My name is Ian Cooper. In this episode, we're talking to Professor Federico Fabrini about the idea of a fiscal capacity for the Eurozone. He wrote a report on this subject for the European Parliament last year. I should mention that this was recorded earlier this summer, before an agreement was reached on the recovery fund to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Here is the conversation with Professor Federico Fabrini. Uh, welcome, Federico. Hello, Ian. Very good talking to you. Today, what we want to talk about is this question of a fiscal capacity for the Eurozone. Now, last year, uh, you wrote a paper for the AFCO Committee of the European Parliament, and it was called A Fiscal Capacity for the Eurozone Constitutional Perspectives. Now, this paper explores an idea that's been raised from time to time since the Euro crisis began more than a decade ago. Now, this is the idea that the Eurozone, that is uh, the 19 member states whose currency is the Euro, should have a fiscal capacity that is distinct from the EU budget. Before we talk about the Euro crisis or the current economic crisis brought on by COVID-19, can you explain in simple terms the concept of a fiscal capacity for the Eurozone? In Eurospeak, uh, fiscal capacity identifies the notion of a budgetary instrument for uh, the Eurozone, uh, that is a budget uh, to be funded through own resources and that can be used by uh, the Eurozone uh, to address uh, asymmetric shock and stabilize the economy in case of uh, a crisis. Uh, every uh, polity has a fiscal capacity uh, as long as it has taxing uh, and spending with the ability to raise resources and to direct them uh, to address the booms and busts of the economic cycle. But as a matter of fact, the EU and the Eurozone don't really have this instrument yet. So, I mean, the policy of economic and monetary union was established uh, at the Treaty of Maastricht. And then the, the single currency actually came into existence in 1999. Um, was there a fundamental flaw in the design of the economic and monetary union? And if so, how was this revealed in the Euro crisis? Economic and monetary union represents a major step forward in the process of European integration. Uh, but EMU, uh, as a component of uh, the European Union, was built from the very beginning as an asymmetric system. Uh, in the Treaty of Maastricht, the member state decided to transfer their monetary powers and their monetary policy to a new uh, fully federalized institution, uh, the European Central Bank, which would have the power to control uh, the currency. Uh, however, despite debates that took place at that time, the member states refused to uh, back up this centralization of monetary powers with an equal centralization of fiscal powers. So what came into existence was an asymmetric union with a centralized monetary pillar and a decentralized economic slash fiscal uh, pillars. 
member states were aware that this imbalance could create complications. So the Treaty of Maastricht actually entrenched uh, two um, proviso uh, to the decentralization of uh, fiscal policy. First of all, the Treaty of Maastricht uh, entrenched a no bailout rule, which said member states are uh, should expect that it will not be helped uh, by others or by the EU institutions in case they face a crisis. And of course, connected to that, the Treaty of Maastricht also introduced a stability and growth pact with precise rules on how much deficit and how much debt uh, each member state could do uh, in order not to create negative uh, externalities on uh, the other uh, member state. However, uh, as the Euro crisis uh, uh, highlighted uh, this architecture that uh, survived for basically a decade uh, since the introduction of the euro as the single currency started crumbling with the explosion of the financial crisis that soon transformed into a real currency crisis for uh, the eurozone in anno 2009. Can I follow up um, with a quick question that goes back to the original design because of course the original intention was that all EU member states would be um, members of the Eurozone. There wouldn't be a distinction between the Eurozone and the, and the EU. Um, but then uh, then um, Denmark and the UK got opt-outs. And, um, and so in, in, in its original design, you couldn't really talk about a difference between the Eurozone and the EU as a whole. So why couldn't the EU budget be used just as a fiscal capacity for the Eurozone? Well, the Treaty of Maastricht uh, did represent a turning point in the history of integration, but uh, to achieve the objective of moving towards economic and monetary union, which had, by the way, been in the plans of the EU institutions, at least since the 1970s with the Werner Report. Uh, well, to achieve that goal, um, the Treaty of Maastricht had to make a number of compromises. So the first one is the one uh, I just mentioned, the creation of an asymmetric union uh, where only monetary policy would be centralized, but fiscal policy would remain in the hands of the member state. And then, of course, uh, the second major compromise that you uh, highlighted uh, is precisely the creation of opt-outs. Uh, up until the Treaty of Maastricht, the understanding had always been that all member states would uh, proceed on European integration at the same speed and by participating uh, evenly to all European uh, policies. Uh, but in order to get concessions uh, by the United Kingdom and Denmark on uh, moving in the direction of creating the euro as a single currency, those two countries were granted an opt-out that allowed them to maintain their own historical uh, national currencies. And uh, as a result of that, the dynamic of differentiated governance uh, became a core component of uh, decision-making uh, and the functioning of the uh, European Union, uh, in turn, uh, creating new challenges for EMU itself, because uh, indeed the European Union has a budget that can be used for counter-cyclical stabilization uh, purposes, but the Eurozone is a, just a sub-component of the whole uh, EU, and therefore it would probably require a specific dedicated instrument just for the countries using uh, the single currency, uh, uh, the Euro as their single currency. 
That brings me to my next question. So European leaders addressed the crisis, you know, at the, the Euro crisis um, uh, rumbled on for, uh, for many, many years. And the European leaders addressed the crisis with numerous changes to the uh, Eurozone's economic governance regime. In particular, they created a Eurozone bailout fund, the European stability mechanism. Now, uh, how is that different from fiscal uh, capacity for the Eurozone? And why are, and more generally, why are these, um, these other institutional changes inadequate uh, to address uh, the problem at hand? The Euro crisis was a turning point in uh, economic and monetary union. Uh, if in the first decade of existence of the Euro, uh, things uh, were sunny and shining, uh, with the Euro crisis, all of a sudden, uh, the sky got clouded uh, and member states were forced back to the drawing board, uh, essentially to stitch up uh, um, an economic and monetary union, which was about to crumble. Uh, the measures that member states adopted in response to the crisis were multiple. On the one hand, there were efforts at strengthening uh, fiscal rules, notably uh, with the adoption of the fiscal compact uh, in 2012, uh, which very much follows in the line of the logic of the Treaty of Maastricht. But uh, as you just pointed out, another major development that has occurred uh, after the crisis is the establishment of the European Stability Mechanism, which is essentially a large bailout fund uh, designed to provide support uh, to Eurozone member state facing uh, financial stress. The, the ESM is created as an international organization, so outside the legal framework of the European Union, and it operates to a large extent along the model of the International Monetary Fund. So it is an institution uh, where member states uh, put capital on the basis of their uh, size and GDP, and these institutions then lends capital to states facing financial difficulties. However, of course, recipients of funds from the ESM are subject to condition because the ESM wants to make sure the capital uh, will, be, uh, um, uh, will be given back at the end of the, of the lending time. And that has led to well-known problem of, of austerity where member states receiving funding uh, from the ESM, notably Greece, but also Ireland, uh, Portugal, Cyprus, uh, and Spain uh, were subject to harsh uh, fiscal and economic uh, conditions uh, as part of the rescue uh, packages that they negotiated uh, with uh, the ESM. So in a way, the European stability mechanism did represent uh, an important step forward in the functioning of the Eurozone as uh, the 19 countries that, that use the Euro as their currency acknowledged that actually the no bailout clause in the Stability and Growth Pact were not sufficient and that in, in, in times of crisis, new tools had to be created uh, to maintain uh, the uh, economic and monetary union. But uh, the ESM by itself uh, does not address the original asymmetry of economic and monetary union that dates back to the Treaty of Maastricht and which is, once again, precisely the lack of a fiscal capacity of a taxing and spending power for the Eurozone institutions themselves. That's very interesting. Now, um, in your paper, you make some points about fiscal federalism and make some historical comparisons that seem quite interesting. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on those? Yes. Um, 
the point uh, in terms of comparison is that actually uh, all federal unions by uh, aggregations and the United States and Switzerland are the two, ex are the two existing examples of, uh, of that, uh, have over time created a centralized fiscal capacity uh, precisely to deal uh, with the asymmetric challenges that emerged uh, in uh, a single currency zone. Uh, so in a sense, the challenges that the uh, Eurozone has been facing and that have been exposed uh, dramatically by, by the Euro crisis are challenges which are typical of federal unions by, uh, by aggregation. And the way how these challenges have been addressed in other federal unions like the United States and Switzerland is precisely the institution of a centralized uh, federal budget uh, that can be used for counter-cyclical uh, economic purposes. Now, I think it's important uh, to notice that, uh, in fact, in each federal union, uh, the steps leading towards the creation of a centralized fiscal capacity uh, were incremental, sometimes very slow, and ultimately it really take it really took a lot of time in both this federation to reach a point where the central government uh, can play a stabilizing function on the respective uh, economies. So uh, this confirms that it is not surprising that it, that it is also so challenging for the Eurozone uh, to get in the same direction. But the bottom line is that all other federal unions uh, have such a centralized fiscal capacity. And in fact, uh, from an economic policy point of view, it is it's hard to maintain a currency union in the absence of that such a tool. To follow on from that, has the Eurozone reached a Hamiltonian moment? The question being, who has proposed the creation of a fiscal capacity and what is the current state of play regarding this idea? The idea of a fiscal capacity has now been discussed uh, by EU institutions and member states for a good decade. Uh, actually, the first one uh, to identify the importance of uh, establishing a fiscal capacity to respond to the euro crisis uh, had been uh, European Council President Herman Van Rompuy in 2010, uh, who uh, was the first really to mention the need of having a fiscal capacity in the eurozone uh, to move forward. Uh, since then, however, the idea uh, has been mentioned and endorsed uh, by uh, a variety of uh, institutions uh, and uh, policymakers. The European Parliament has been extremely supportive uh, of uh, such a development. A special um, high-level group convened by the Parliament, the Council and the Commission to reflect on the future of the own resources of the European Union has also spoken in favor of endowing the EU with uh, a fiscal uh, capacity. And a number of national governments uh, have uh, in turn uh, thrown out their support to this idea. Uh, in particular, France, Italy, Spain, uh, but also smaller countries like uh, Belgium have expressed support uh, for such a tool. Now, the debate has been largely driven uh, by different perceptions among uh, member states on what the purpose of such a fiscal capacity uh, could be. Uh, and eventually, the Eurogroup has reached a compromise in 2019 to create a so-called budgetary instrument uh, for competitiveness and convergence, uh, which is the bulk of a fiscal capacity for uh, the Eurozone. However, as the name of this new facility explains, 
the purpose of this budgetary instrument is exclusively tied to ensuring the competitiveness of national economies and the convergence between national economies. On the contrary, uh, this budgetary instrument uh, in the will of the Eurogroup does not have yet stabilization function. Uh, and that creates a wedge because on the contrary, uh, the European Parliament uh, as well as the Commission have supported the creation of a tool that also has counter-cyclical stabilization uh, purposes, uh, and indeed uh, having a tool with that characteristic uh, remains essential to um, fill the gap left open uh, 20 years ago by uh, the treaty, 30 years ago really, by the Treaty of, uh, of Maastricht. Now you say uh, counter-cyclical, but um... Isn't it really all about mutualization of debt? Isn't that really the big question? The question of fiscal capacity, I think, has to be kept separate from uh, the question of the resources of the European Union. Uh, as I said at the very start, fiscal capacity in the Eurospeak uh, just refers to a budget for the Eurozone. Then how resources are, are, uh, are going to be raised uh, to finance this budget uh, is, uh, is a separate issue. So essentially, it is possible to conceive of a fiscal capacity which is not based on mutualization in the sense that uh, it doesn't consist of transfers from richer to a poorer uh, member state. Uh, a fiscal capacity based on own resources could allow the union uh, to raise money uh, by taxing specific activities and then using those money for uh, counter-cyclical stabilization uh, purposes. Uh, of course, however, uh, it is true that in the uh, interstate debates uh, that have shaped negotiation on fiscal capacity and the budgetary instruments for competitiveness and convergence, the problem of moral hazard and mutualization uh, has been uh, repeatedly uh, invoked particularly by a group of Nordic member states who are very worried of the idea that uh, their taxpayer monies uh, will be used uh, to uh, bail out countries uh, in the South. And yet I think uh, also in light of the discussion we had minutes ago about the ESM, I think it's important uh, we consider that uh, already we have uh, bailout mechanisms in the uh, European Union, and still economic and monetary union remains an incomplete and asymmetric structure that requires adequate uh, taxing and spending power at the central level uh, to match a single monetary policy by the European Central Bank. Right, and so to jump ahead slightly, um, where would the money come from? The high-level group on own resources uh, that was led by uh, former Italian Prime Minister and European Commissioner Mario Monti uh, released a report uh, three years ago where it discussed uh, fiscal capacity precisely in the context of uh, a broader reflections about the own resources of the European Union. Uh, in the original intention of the architect of European integration, uh, the EU uh, would be able uh, to raise its own uh, resources. Uh, the European coal and steel community actually had the power to directly tax enterprises and get uh, its, uh, the money to, to fund its budget uh, from uh, businesses. And in the uh, early days of European integration, the Commission was indeed mostly funding itself, for example, 
through custom duties uh, and, other, uh, and other forms of uh, genuine own resources. However, with the expansion of the union, uh, the reduction of customs duties and simply the increasing cost of maintaining uh, the, uh, uh, the European Union as an enlarged organization, the European budget today is actually mostly funded by transfer from uh, the member state budget. So states contribute to the EU budget and then the EU redistributes this money uh, to states through programs such as the common agricultural policy, the cohesion policy, structural funds, uh, educations, and so on and so forth. Uh, now this the way how the EU budget uh, is designed um, has made budgetary negotiation highly dysfunctional in Europe because each member state is always calculating uh, the net costs and the net benefits it gets out of the EU budget. And that goes against the whole logic uh, of having uh, a single uh, a supranational budget for the EU, uh, which should be to pursue European uh, public goods. So the uh, Monti high-level group uh, put forward ideas which had been discussed uh, by academics and think tankers in the last few years to profoundly reform uh, the EU own resource system. Uh, and in particular to introduce new forms of uh, European taxes, uh, which would introduce levies uh, on activities or behaviors such as pollution uh, or financial transactions, uh, allowing the EU to raise resources which do not come from the coffers of uh, the member state. Now, along this logic, a fiscal capacity uh, could and indeed should be financed exactly in the same ways with uh, activities uh, or operations uh, which are taxed uh, also for the benefit that the European Union uh, provides to individuals uh, and uh, enterprises. And if uh, the vicious cycle between state transfers and budget negotiations could be broken, uh, I think the fiscal capacity not only would uh, set aside fears of debt mutualization, but in fact uh, would become uh, an extraordinary instrument uh, to support uh, the, uh, European, uh, the European economy and, and particularly its recovery. And, and this really takes me to final point uh, I'd like to discuss with you, which is uh, the recent proposal by the European Commission uh, for a European recovery plan uh, in the context of or in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, because uh, this project, uh, although it doesn't use the terminology of fiscal capacity, effectively comes very close uh, to what uh, a fiscal capacity is uh, and should be. I've got another very important question for you and that is who holds the purse strings of the fiscal capacity? How is it uh, governed? And uh, what would be the lines of democratic accountability that make sure um, that uh, that would oversee the way the money is spent? This is an extremely important question. 
uh, one of the enduring asymmetries uh, of the EU institutional architecture in the field of economic and monetary union, it's the limited power of the European Parliament on budgetary affairs. Uh, according to the treaty, uh, the European Parliament has a veto power on the adoption of the multi-annual financial framework of the uh, European Union, which sets out the spending plans for a seven-year time span. And also the European Parliament has an important voice in the adoption of the annual budget of the EU. But up until today, uh, the Parliament has no voice on the raising of EU uh, resources, so the uh, adoption of the uh, EU decision on the own resources. Uh, and uh, this is, frankly, inconsistent with constitutional principles uh, which uh, proclaim that there should be no taxation without uh, representation. So it is unsurprising that uh, all policy proposals that have been speaking in favor of uh, a fiscal capacity for uh, the Eurozone have also emphasized how the European Parliament should get a greater say and a greater role on decisions about taxing uh, and uh, spending in, uh, in, in the Eurozone uh, as the only institution directly elected by uh, European citizens and, and representing them in the EU decision-making uh, process. But how do you get around the problem that um, you have MEPs from non-Eurozone countries voting on how to spend the money for the Eurozone? This is indeed a challenging institutional question. Uh, at the moment, uh, following the withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the uh, European Union, there's only nine member states who do not uh, use the Euro uh, as, their, uh, as their currency. Uh, eight member states that do not use the euro as their currency following Brexit. Uh, some of these countries are large, such as Poland. Uh, however, a majority of the European population uh, lives in Eurozone uh, member states and therefore the representation of Eurozone citizens within the European Parliament is uh, by and large uh, dominant. Uh, clearly, this is an issue that uh, has been dealt with in other contexts. Uh, think, for example, of the West Lothian question in uh, the UK uh, Parliament, and often uh, there is no easy fix uh, to deal uh, with this. Uh, in fact, some proposals have even been put forward to create a separate Eurozone assembly precisely to decide uh, on uh, the Eurozone uh, budget. I think a lot will depend on the dynamics of differentiated governance in the EU in the next few years. If we will witness a process of increasing convergence towards the Euro with the so-called Euro outs um, step by step moving in the direction of entering into the single currency, of course the problem will solve by itself. If on the contrary, uh, we are going to see actually uh, deeper cleavages emerging between the Euro ins and the Euro outs, uh, cleavages, which of course have not only to do uh, with EMU issues, but also connect with problems in the context of the rule of law or migration, then we might witness really a decoupling between the Eurozone uh, and the other member states of the European Union. And of course, that uh, would most certainly lead also to serious reflections about institutional reforms uh, that would give uh, parliamentary legislative legitimacy to decisions on uh, fiscal matters to a representative body uh, only uh, expressing the will of citizens of member states that use the euro as their currency.
Okay, one more question, um, and it's a big one. Um, what would be the legal basis for the uh, fiscal capacity for the Eurozone? Wouldn't you need to change the EU treaties in order to create this fiscal capacity? In my view, actually, the EU treaties already allow the EU institutions to move in the direction of uh, having a fiscal capacity. Um, in fact, as I was mentioning a few minutes ago, the European Commission recently put forward a very ambitious recovery plan for the post-pandemic uh, uh, European uh, economy, uh, which does not require any type of treaty change. The legal basis, uh, including uh, um, the competence of the European Union to pass legislation in the field of industry, research, um, economic and social cohesion, uh, and uh, internal market, provide sufficient a legislative authority to the union to intervene in this field. With that said, however, there are a number of important uh, uh, other institutional adaptations that would require treaty change and that in my view would become absolutely necessary if the union were to move in that direction. One point we just discussed is the power of the uh, European uh, Parliament uh, to have a greater voice on taxing uh, and spending. Another issue which is of significant uh, importance and it's, it's again entrenched in the treaty is the obligation by the Union to maintain a balanced budget, uh, which uh, creates a number of particular challenges uh, in terms of the ability of the EU to um, contract debt. Uh, and there are other uh, more general uh, questions connected to the uh, institutional functioning of the European Union, uh, which would need to be addressed uh, for a fiscal capacity of this type uh, to become viable, including, for example, unanimity vote in the Council on, on taxing matters, uh, which makes extremely difficult uh, for uh, this intergovernmental body uh, to reach uh, agreement. So by itself, the fiscal capacity can be done uh, without any type of treaty amendment. The legal basis we have at the moment are sufficient to that end. But of course, uh, the step towards a fiscal capacity would represent indeed a major step forward in the terms of the federalization of the European Union. And therefore, I think that would need to be matched by appropriate uh, constitutional reforms. Okay, well, thank you, uh, Federico Fabrini. Thank you for talking to us today. And thank you for calling me. The Post-Brexit Europe podcast is a product of the Bridge Network, which is a Jean Monnet network funded by the European Union's Erasmus Plus program. It is recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute with Catherine Martin as the producer. My name is Ian Cooper. Thank you for listening.